0: Welcome back to the Messy Truth Conversations on Photography. I'm super excited to start our fourth season with the brilliant Farah Al-Kasimi. While her primary line of inquiry looks at post-colonial structures of power, gender and taste in the Gulf Arab states, what galvanises her work is her unique ability to embed meaning into visual aesthetics. Farah describes her aesthetic approach as so muchness. Her frames overflow with a heady mix of print, objects and domestic interiors, amplified by this tension between harsh lighting and an acidic colour palette. And together they transport us into her psyche, an intimate imagining of her world. Working with photography, video and performance, she uses the world as raw material rather than a direct subject. And in doing this, she builds worlds in which geography doesn't matter in order to access a psychic space that defies language. I love talking to Farah about her process, her latest show Funhouse, and how our weird world informs her work. I grew up in the United
1: Arab Emirates and I was born during the first Gulf War, which I think means that my birth was maybe shrouded in a cloud of anxiety. <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense for how I am the way I am now. But I had a pretty happy childhood, but I think one of the things I remember most that has certainly bled into the way that I work is just like a feeling of not boredom, but sort of like stillness and the necessity of imagination. And the analogy that I always use is like, you know, when you go to your cousin's house and all the grown-ups are like catching up and it's so boring. So you go to the basement and make like... A music like a fake music video on somebody's old Panasonic or something Um, (laughs) I don't know if everybody did that but I feel like a lot of people can relate to that feeling of like okay this is what we have around us and we kind of have to pretend that it is something else so yeah and I mean like we you know the Emirates as people know it now did not exist this way in the early 90s so there were no shopping malls. There was like really nowhere to go. So you would like you would go to your friend's houses until McDonald's opened. And then that's when you that's where you would go to hang out. How did you find yourself at photography? Because you studied music, right? I did. Yeah, I went to school to study music. I had no I had no experience with art because I went to a really awful school. Like to my parents credit, it was like a, like the hardest school in the Emirates at the time, I think. But it was a terrible school in that it had no music or art classes. And it was basically like if you can't do physics and math and you're stupid and you have to be in the remedial class. And the, the the headmaster is this awful guy who's, my God, still the headmaster. Like somehow just like really awful, awful uh, way of treating kids um, and like stifling their natural curiosities and tendencies. So I had no experience with visual art, really. and. Um, I went to college to to study music and because my parents kind of, you know, forced me to take piano lessons, which I'm now really thankful for. I was really bad at the music classes at Yale because uh, they were all very, very theory oriented, which I can't do because I'm really bad at math. Um, and I took a basic drawing class and loved it. And then I took a darkroom class and there was something about the quietness and stillness of developing film you know, in in the dark room that like, I think was really good for that moment in time. Um, I was also <laughs> really depressed. So I think it was like, good to just have these, you know, meditative moments. And the photographs were all very like young art student photographs, like moody and, you know, like a dead cat, um, you know, a, like former strip club, you know, like with a peeling sign, stuff like that. That's very mm-hmm. easy, low hanging fruit.
0: It's interesting that you kind of mentioned imagining at the beginning, because I feel like with your work, there's so many forces at play. And I, you know, in thinking about how we would have this conversation, I just didn't feel like there's necessarily a linear pathway into your work. But Mm -hmm. in some ways, that actually feels quite fitting in terms of how your work operates. And I first, I guess, kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit more about that importance of imagining and Mm -hmm. how as humans, we kind of find a way of pushing beyond our limitations through imagining, but also how artists use the camera as a tool of like reconfiguring reality and imagining. Does that kind of ethos resonate for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, for me,
1: like a lot of it really just goes back to this childlike need to um, transcend your surroundings. But I think if I were to really go back to your first question and think about my, how my immediate surroundings may have played a part, in like the need for imagination. I think that there was a real sense when you live in a developing country, there's like a real sense that things around you are very much oriented towards the future and not the present. So there's this idea that you're constantly striving towards a better version, you know, of a national identity of, you know, a national economy. So there was, I think there was something about desire that was already very much imprinted in the way that I engaged with the world and read it. That's something that started to play out in some of my own expectations of what my work should do and how it
0: should operate. You're also really kind of deeply interested and kind of invested in the failure and of photography and kind of its limitations as well. Mm -hmm. And that, idea of like capturing the real thing or the true essence is right. is, is, is maybe faulted or or not even possible I right. wondered if you could talk a little bit about kind of what interests you about failure and how it kind of manifests in the work
1: yeah I mean I, I guess for me that like I feel like failure is, is always a loaded word which is why I like to use it because I think it means different things for different people but I think I I'm interested in it in the sense that photography is a medium that's constantly being it, it's constantly mired with these expectations about truth telling, right? And like accuracy. And I think mm-hmm. that's a kind of an unfair um limitation to place on the medium because we don't necessarily ask the same thing of a painting or a sculpture and yet we still look to those things in history as you know guides to what a certain period of time was like like we think about movements in art you know as being very much tied to political climates and so i think is it's something that i've always tried to challenge to like really think about what happens when you ask the camera to tell the truth and how it will inevitably fail and there's this scary one a grand quote that i've always liked where he says that every photograph is a lie because what you choose to include in a frame is going to differ from what somebody else chooses. Um, so there's no like ultimate singular subjectivity. And I guess, yeah, for for me, that's, that's you know, I, I, I want to exploit that possibility and really think about photographs as being able to contain multiple truths instead of being like, this is a record of what happened at this time. I think that's the, the part of failure that I like to engage with the most.
0: There's also, it feels like there's a little bit of a sense of humour around the way you kind of play with or capture moments of sort of photographic failure, or is it really photographic failure? I don't know, like maybe like those odd instances in daily life that are just kind of a little bit strange and weird and don't quite make sense, but the failure of those to be I don't know. I'm not really yeah. I don't it's really, well, really a question. <laughs> I know
1: exactly what you're talking about. I mean, I think you're talking about like a sense of humor. The way that I think about it is like looking at something that's trying to transcend itself and failing. So, um maybe this is like a a good example I think is one of my first photographs I took in college that I really like. Basically what happened was like I was living in New Haven and I was really depressed and I ordered from wallpapers.com, which I don't know if it exists anymore, but I ordered this like 12 by nine foot mural of a beautiful beach paradise. And I didn't realize that because of the way my walls were molded, it wouldn't fit like flat on the wall. And I did it purely. I was like, you know, it wasn't for a photograph. I was like, I really just want to wake up to the sight of a beach. And so it kind of hung in a way that was, it made it really obvious that it was not well-installed and so for me that you know I ended up photographing it and that was about like my own failure to escape my immediate surroundings you know as 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 hard as I tried and so, and I think that there's something about that in the work that I've been doing right like that I don't know that very human need to say this isn't it for me, you know, I need more. Mm. And then not
0: being able to to access the more. I wanted to actually talk to you about surface because it feels like such a critical part of your work and it operates on so many levels from kind of within the frame, but also how you present the work and often kind of layering photographic wallpapers within the gallery as well. Mm. And within your photographs, the different materials seem to also carry so many stories like the actual literal fabrics mm-hmm. that appear and kind of so many histories and ideas and maybe even some different politics as well mm-hmm. and i feel like they really confront the viewer in quite a magical way i wondered if you could talk a little bit about the importance of surface and kind of materiality within the work
1: yeah i i think it just like it stems from my obsession with objects and
0: i'm not quite sure
1: i don't know like why i am the way i am i think i think like I had a very particular relationship to consumerism because, you know, my, my mom's family live in the U S they're, they're Lebanese American. And so we would spend the year like in the Emirates and, and then, you know, as soon as June hit, we would go to the U S and all of a sudden I would like the first place I wanted to go was the mall because then I would learn like what, what was cool. Like, what did I miss out on that was now cool and like catch up on that. And so I think for me, like, objects had a really particular cultural resonance and they also signified like an actual you know sense of escape and possibility so that's something that I always try to include in the work like and and I think also because a lot of my work doesn't include uh, very visible figures I think of the objects as kind of stand-ins for figures so like what does somebody's you know collection of perfumes say about them and how they aspire to be in the world Because like, you know, we have objects around us all the time. There's got to be, they have to be absorbing our psychic energy in some way, you know, at the very least, if it means that we're like imbuing them with all of these hopes for what we want to be or want to represent. So I don't know. I've always thought that if you look enough at what someone has in their room, that's enough of, that's like a portrait in itself.
0: Yeah, for sure. I really see that kind of objects and ephemera are kind of a lead character in what you're doing. And it feels like that curiosity for them really kind of vibrates off the frame. And mm-hmm. and it's interesting, actually, how the objects that both you use and kind of bring in, but also appear to be in their natural environment in other shots, kind of really speak to so many ideas around not just kind of commerce and, and commerciality, but like power and culture and stereotypes. Mm-hmm. They're just so loaded. And, and there's obviously, you know, sometimes like, 20 plus objects in a frame and there's so many different stories and how those objects are kind of in conversation as well I think it's really fascinating
1: yeah definitely and I think you know I I, I keep trying to figure out how to describe my aesthetic tendencies and like I feel like so muchness is a word that I think about a lot (laughs) you know or for lack of a better I mean you could say like maximalism but I don't know there's something about that that I don't like because it's it butts up against minimalism, um, mm-hmm. you know, which has its own, I don't know, its own context that I don't want to get into. But I think for me, there is a, like people, I think one of the words that that people think of a lot when they think of the Gulf is excess, right? Like an excess of money and excess of power and excess of oil. And I, I do think there is an excess, but I don't I don't think of it in those terms. I think that there's just a real sense that you're constantly surrounded by imagery, like, like, literally, you're in a place that is growing that has this booming economy. There's billboards the size of skyscrapers on the highway, there's, you know, there's like vinyl advertisements that literally run down a skyscraper, you know, that change every few months. So I think there's, there's a sense of layering that happens naturally within the landscape of the place and like the cities that I'm trying to speak to in the way that I layer my own work in in a gallery space.
0: And I know you talked before about how kind of commercial spaces are a really vital informant for you. And that seems to also connect to objects as well, because of the kind of connection to malls and sort of the lineages of objects in terms of where they come from and their Mm -hmm. origins. Why do you find those kind of commercial spaces so interesting and sort of dynamic?
1: Um, I think because they're, they're like one of... A few public spaces in the Emirates where that like become equalizers in the sense that they're free to go to and you don't have to spend money to be in a mall. And at the same time, because summer means that you can't really be outside, no one's hanging out at a park. So I think for that reason, it's it takes the place of like a you know downtown or like a city square or whatever, where you actually do start to see the social dynamics of the place, make themselves more clear. I remember when the first shopping mall opened in the Emirates, like the first like real shopping mall, because we had kind of fake crappy ones where you could go and buy like pirated video games and Tupac shirts and stuff like that. And it was like, it became famous for being a pickup spot for local men and women. But the way that they would do it was like sit in their cars and park next to each other and then talk to each other from their cars and like throw like love notes and mix CDs at each other. So, you know, this is just like one of many ecosystems that takes place under the environment of the shopping mall, which I find, yeah, just like really complicated and and interesting and, um, and like really vital to the culture.
0: Do you have kind of fond memories of those times when you used to hang out there?
1: Oh my god, yeah. I still go <laughs> to malls when I'm home. Yeah, I, I love malls my favorite mall currently that i go to all the time which is in my work a lot is called dragon mart and um it's it's actually two malls it's dragon mart one and dragon mart two and they're malls in the shape of of dragons
0: oh my god so good
1: they're great and they're the largest concentration of chinese goods outside of china and it's also a free zone so it's like you step into you literally step into it completely different world when you go to dragon mart and it's um it's kind of incredible because it feels it doesn't feel like a mall it feels like a bazaar so you have alleyways i've, I've always i've been there maybe i don't know 50 times or something no probably not that many i've been there a lot and i get lost every single time <laughs> and you know you have people like yelling at you for you know panhandling or like people um you know trying to sell you cheaper goods than the person next door You can literally buy anything you, anything you can imagine. You can buy a gold toilet. You can buy, um, I don't know, you can buy like portable incense burner. Yeah, you just, you can buy anything. So that's my go-to when I'm home.
0: It feels like some of the arrangements within some of your work also really kind of speak to that idea of kind of a bazaar or a mall or how objects are kind of presented to sort of I don't know, elicit our desire.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think like objects are the ultimate tool for psychological projection because I do this all the time where like I'm, I'm such a sucker for shopping and I have definitely have like a shopping addiction. Like I love eBay. And I think for me, it's not about like, okay, I have this thing that I need, but it's like, I imagine myself as the kind of person who would wear this, you know? Or like I saw a beautiful woman in the street wearing a coat like this. And she seemed like she really had her whole life together. So I want a coat like hers. You know, it's like, it's very much about the life that accompanies the object rather than the object on its own. So I think Mm -hmm. that's what I'm trying to access, particularly with like, I took a lot of photographs of like toiletries and perfumes, I think, because the bathroom and like hygiene are so sacred in our part of the world. And even just like looking at the names of like, men's perfumes versus women's perfumes like I have a whole list that I've collected of of like men and women perfume names and how the names reflect like all the men's names are like CEO you know Um, (laughs) like there's one called Obama and all the women ones are like sexy
0: lovable you know desire so You've been sharing those on Instagram, right?
1: Oh yeah, I share all my perfume pics.
0: (laughs) So good. Just to go back to kind of what you were saying before, I'm really curious kind of how your visual language emerged and and how much of it is conscious versus subconscious. Because as I said at the beginning, but also kind of in hearing you talk about it, it's just, there's just so much embedded meaning. There's so much layering. Did that kind of happen organically or, you know, is there a kind of, real level of kind of deconstructing every single element within the frame?
1: Um, I think it happened organically. I think it reflects like a, a a couple of changes in the way that I've been working. And I can kind of, I think, point to some of them. Uh, I think I came from a place where, you know, my education was, very centered around street photography or, you know, or like travel photography or people like Walker Evans, Lee Friedlander, Stephen Shore, William Eggleston, you know, Joel Sternfeld, all of these like American white men who took the camera on the road and, you know, had this kind of grand search or grand destiny um, that they were setting out for. So I think I, I had these particular ideas about what photography should be and how it should operate. But the more that I worked, the more I realized that the most important social dynamics that I want to think about and unpack happen within the walls of a home rather than, you know, out in the American West or somewhere that I'm unfamiliar with. So I started to think maybe it was okay to not have, you know, not have to be grand about my, I don't know, about my my spirit of search and that maybe I just had to be more, nuanced and more astute about what was happening under my nose, and then as soon as I gave myself permission to do that um, it felt like the work started to become more of itself so I think that's where that's where I am
0: now like a real tuning into your surroundings
1: yeah and and the way that like I was thinking about this recently because I've been giving a lot of zoom talks um, which are horrible because it's like it feels like you're talking to yourself And there's like no one to laugh at your jokes (laughs) but uh, or not laugh at your jokes, you know. But there's something, I don't know. I I was thinking about this moment that I had the other day when I was trying to photograph in um, Jackson Heights. And I was like, why can't I be the kind of photographer that can just approach somebody and say, you know, can I take your picture or just do it? Like I have a real shyness around working in public or with people I don't know that has held me back a lot. And so I found myself kind of doing this thing where I was I was beating myself up internally and I was like god you're so you know you're so weak like you're so lame why can't you just be brave and you know get the shot and then I was like wait a minute my instincts have brought me to where I am now which I think you know is distinctly my it's like a a world of my own making and so maybe that i don't know maybe that fear is actually a sensitivity like maybe i can reframe it as something to be paid attention to and, and, you know, honored rather than something to be overcome. So I think I'm still learning, maybe unlearning the things that I was told were, uh, you know, photographic virtues and learning a little bit more to pay attention to my own sensitivities and how they can be a guiding principle for the way that I want to work.
0: Yeah, I really love that. I feel like, Uh, That's something I think about all the time. And this idea that there's actually so much value in showing up as your whole self Mm -hmm. within your creative work, obviously within your life, but within your creative work. And I think there's so many conscious and subconscious forces like trying to, as you perfectly described, like pull us into being, into these ways of working that we've kind of assimilated or or we believe are kind of the expectations. But actually, when you really tune into yourself and the myriad of ways that you naturally want to move through the world, it can be quite powerful and quite liberating as well. Like to understand, yeah, like you said, to kind of reframe and understand that something that you might have thought was like a failure or a shortcoming is actually a sensitivity and it's actually but it's also about sort of navigating what works for you in like a, I don't know, not just in a, in a comfort way, but in a, I don't know, just kind of without sounding like woo-woo, but like just finding your truth and and how you move within the world. I think it's just so important. And whenever I meet or kind of work with photographers who have just such a strong sense of themselves, it's just unparalleled. They just just everything about the work and how it comes together has like an ease even when it's hard because they're just really in tune with who they are and have kind of confidence with that totally and I think that's
1: you know that really comes down to why I enjoy photography so much as a medium because it really is about the person right and it's about their subjectivity it's about them becoming a filter for the world and I could never make the same photograph as you know anyone Anyone else? Mm -hmm. You can try, but at the end of the day, like you're not going to make a Latoya Ruby Frazier photograph. You're not going to make, you know, an Eggleston photograph unless you're Eggleston or Latoya Ruby Frazier. And so I think that's really where I become interested in looking, you know, because it's like these are different things that people are telling me to pay attention to, and they're reflecting very different parts of the world that I'm not aware of. So in a way, it's it's kind. I think of it as like the 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 I think of photography as the art form or medium where like psychotherapy or like, I, I don't know, any sort of like psychological, I don't know, condition or or whatever is the most apparent or the most important. And, and yeah. it's, really about, it's about humans. It's about people.
0: Yeah, 100%. I really wholeheartedly agree. I'd love to talk a little bit more about how you kind of blend observational moments with intervention and how these two approaches kind of function for you, how you, like your process around that, but also how they work in dialogue for you and why that's so successful.
1: I don't know. I I guess it's just like a, it's a, at a certain point, I stopped wanting to make the distinction between those ways of working and realized that, you know, to go back to this idea of like complexity rather than singular truth. I think I realized that, okay, I can see something happen, And ask somebody to repeat it, or I can go back and make a portrait um, in this place where I with somebody I know, rather than trying to photograph a stranger, you know, and not quite getting the shot. So I think that gave me a little bit of permission and leeway to think of the world as raw material, um, you know, rather than as like immediate subject. And that's yeah, that's kind of how I've continued to work, and I feel like. It, it is. It's very interesting to me that people will often get wrong what is staged and what isn't, <laughs> right? Because like, yeah, you know how there are moments where we're like, how could this possibly? How could the truth be stranger than fiction? But it very much is, and you know, if there's anything that we've learned from like living this sci-fi universe the, the last couple of years, uh, and and like that's what's interesting to me when the world really shows itself. I don't know. So usually the shows that I do or like what constitutes a body of work will happen when I have observed like it will usually start from a photograph that's kind of like an observation or just a reaction to something and then I start to understand the parameters of the work more clearly um, and then I start to maybe supplement it with other ideas Uh, so yeah that's that's my current process but you know I expect that it will continue to change as it has.
0: I'd love to talk a little bit more about the Emirates because you you've talked before about how it's a place that is often misseen and kind of people marvel at it in a in maybe like the wrong kind of way or in a kind of complex or problematic way yeah but what I'm interested in is that your work isn't really seeking to be corrective of that it's kind of while it does offer a counter-narrative it's kind of more well for me anyway it feels like it's more focused on perhaps being a bit critical about some of the aspects of the culture in terms of how it pertains to gender specifically but also power but with this kind of light touch it feels both celebratory of of the Emirates and the culture and so much nuance there. But also, yeah, it feels like there's a criticality there.
1: Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit? Definitely. I mean, I feel like as with, you know, your family, to know something deeply is to both love it and also want it to be better. Or like, you know, I think there's sort of like, when you're so familiar with a place or a person, there's, I don't know, you will undoubtedly have a lot of complex feelings about it. And I think that that's always been true for me, but as the UAE starts to appear a little bit more as a player, you know, on the political global stage, I feel like there are parts of the work that have become self-fulfilling prophecies in a way. And so I have also been very careful about how I place that criticism and how it is sort of, you know, almost disguised as... As metaphor, or it's maybe disguised in, you know, in in other things, and and I'm careful that it's not about conflating a government with its people, you know, because a lot of the people in the photographs are my 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 dear friends and family, and so I think it would be a little bit convoluted for me to implicate them in this national narrative. But at the same time, I understand that people are going to read it that way because you know, they're maybe not familiar with other documents of that part of the world that are made by the people of it, right? Like we have a lot of documents of the Emirates made by British explorers or soldiers or urban planners, you know, or even just like contemporary vice bros, but we don't have a, on on a sort of um, global scale we don't we're not really looking at the work of all well, from that part of the world um and you know I think it's important to for me to acknowledge that responsibility, but to also try not to let it dictate the way that I work
0: yeah, and it feels like that also impacts on the on the read of the work as well and and how it quite profoundly has multiple reads, and that kind of sinks to the complexity of the gaze of the viewer as well because there's so much cultural specificity in there to a degree that, a lot of that must be lost on a Western audience who doesn't understand the nuance of the culture. And I'm curious how you think about audience and if you feel like you're making the work with a particular group in mind.
1: Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about audience a lot more recently because I think it's something that I get asked about and I've never had a good answer for it. But I think because I've been asked about it, I've actually been forced to really think about who the audience is. And I think I've arrived at the answer that feels most true to the work, which is that the audience is the people in the photographs. And I think because it is such a collaborative process, which I know a lot of photographers use the word collaboration as a sort of out to like the power dynamic that inherently exists in taking somebody's picture. But I do believe because a lot of the people that I work with are artists and, you know, understand also my work and, you know, my my vision and my sense of humor, there is a real sense of, understanding of like what context their image will exist in. Mm -hmm. I feel like they, they are my audience. If, If, if we're not both having an epiphany at the moment of the photograph, then, you know, I don't really want to show the photograph. And if they don't feel well represented, then I also don't want
0: to show the photograph. So they're always involved in the work before it gets shown to anybody else. It's a really interesting time in photography that I think a lot of this is coming to the surface and a lot of interesting questions are being asked across the board, not just in fine art photography, but photojournalism in documentary and also in commercial photography. I mean, the dynamics within photography are just very wrought and profoundly problematic. I think it's great that people are having a conversation about this now.
1: Totally. I mean, photography has a dark history, you know, we're not that far away from
0: colonialism
1: and, you know, uh, eugenics. And it's just like, it's, and surveillance, we've been, you know, the aspect of sort of freezing somebody's image, that's a tool that's been used mostly to co- cause harm to people. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm very aware of that history and also aware of the longevity of the photograph So I want to be careful and respectful when I am asking
0: somebody to participate in that process. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. I'd love to talk about the origin of Funhouse, your show that took place earlier this year in New York, because it was such an amazing, amazing exhibition.
1: Thank you. Funhouse. um, How did Funhouse start? I think it started in an actual Funhouse. I was in like a a hall of mirrors which is funny because there's a photograph that didn't make it into the show of that hall of mirrors I don't know and I just like I was thinking like this sort of is very much like the process of taking a photograph where this you know this mirror is saying look at your midsection it's so big I'm gonna make it bigger and I think that's kind of what photography does like it it tells you to um, focus on something. It warps certain parts of reality. It masks others. So there was, I don't know, there was something about that like wacky vision that I felt spoke very much to the to the relationship between the world and its image. Um, and so the, one of the things that's central to that show is a wallpaper piece of a store in Dubai called The Amazon. Um, and so that begins the motif of mirrors and reflection in the show and also of like of mimicry too so this store it's basically a dollar store and they've borrowed I like to say instead of stolen (laughs) um, because Amazon we all know is the big thief so they they took the Amazon logo and they just added a the in the beginning and there was something about that store that was really incredible to me like this this moment of you know, deciding to copy the biggest online, you know, retailer, um, the biggest corporation, um, and, you know, just kind of attach it to like a humble dollar store. So that, I think, unlocked something that was a little bit more conceptual in nature, rather than about uh, consistency of geography. So I, um, yeah, I put together a body of work that was that you know of photographs that I thought reflected this gulf between the world and its image um some of them are photographs of people some of them are not but I think altogether there's a way where they all make the world feel like a carnival you know and I think that's not very far from my own the way that I experience the world yeah if... as somebody's overactive imagination
0: <laughs> I was gonna say yeah it feels like quite a destabilizing show there's like this real sense of like zooming in and zooming out at the same time and it and it just feels I guess it's that opaqueness as well it feels like it's designed to confuse you and yeah to stabilize yeah. your point of view
1: yeah exactly like a like a funhouse mirror
0: yeah it's great I love it I love that Amazon shot actually it's one of my favorite shots in the show <laughs> so funny it feels like it really that shot really encapsulates so much about what your work's about and all of the different mm-hmm. themes in one in one image And I really love how you kind of often layer the space as we were talking about before and how you're kind of flattening multiple planes into one image and kind of also this idea of like bringing spaces into other spaces and how you connect different wallpapers together in one space, which may not necessarily in in everyday life connect together. And I think you do that so well in Funhouse. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that process and and why that element is so interesting to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess I think about it as almost like uh, it's, I think it's a continuation of the process of photography. You know, I think a lot of it is about collaging the world. Like I mentioned earlier that the, I see the world as raw material. And with that, I feel like there's, there's an alchemy where you can really like take these truthful things and turn them into something new rather than like having to make a fantastical image or like stage something crazy Uh, I think there's enough that's already there that becomes apparent in the relationship between images that seem unrelated. And so for me, it's like, it's becomes about the, you know, the sum of all the parts, having some, I don't know, some element of, I guess, surprise, you know, and, and I think of escape too. So I'll do a lot of different iterations of Wallpaper, you know, photograph combos, and there's there's a logic. There's always a logic to it. It's never arbitrary. Uh, but I think it's sort of meant to echo some of the, you know, uh, rip like some of the layering of imagery that happens within the frames too.
0: You know, this idea of you know the world being such an interesting material in itself. Do you find a kind of a, an abundance of these moments when you're just operating? And sort of navigating the world, or is it something that you kind of have to really actively seek out?
1: I think it happens more often when I'm an active looker. Like,
0: even if I'm just walking
1: down the street and I see something, I won't be like, oh, I'll take a photograph of that. You know, I'll say, oh, I'm going to come back later when I can give it attention and time and really observe it. So, I like to think about photography as a sort of active practice, but unfortunately, because of the way my life and practice are structured. I can't do it every day just because I think freelancing really requires you to be in different modes of working at different times. Um, So usually when I go home, I'm like shooting every day from, you know, 10 to 8. And and then I come back here to the US to my studio. And then it becomes more about like, deciding what images make sense together, um, figuring out the layering process, you know, making the prints, making the films, things like that.
0: There's a film in funhouse called Alone in the Crowd, which is this haunting improvised piano piece that you're playing at this grand piano in a clown costume that you got from Dragon Mart. Yeah. And I'm really interested in the role of performativity within your work and how it uh, what it allows you to access as an artist.
1: Mm. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think for me, it gives me permission to be sort of over the top and expressive. I feel like growing up, as most people do, I felt like I kind of had to suppress a lot of very regular human emotions. And so, you know, to appear more kind of agreeable. Um, And so I think when I can sort of embody a different character, it feels like any social conventions or responsibilities that I have to appear Normal um, melt away, and I'm able to just sort of tap into a more hysterical or untethered state. Yeah, so I think for me, the clown was a really obvious character because they're literally performing and miming exaggerated human emotion. And so, with that piece, there's moments where I'm definitely the clown, and there's moments where I forget that I'm the clown, and this sort of expressiveness is much more muted and is coming directly through the music rather than through, you know, me trying to consciously embody what I perceive to be sadness or
0: relief or happiness. So that's how I was thinking about it. Yeah, because self-representation has been also this theme within your work as well, which I find, I kind of think has some connection to some of what you were just saying. Uh, but it's been interesting how it's manifested throughout your work. So in Body Shop, you kind of collaborated with an Emirati photo studio and you asked them to make you look beautiful and they essentially kind of face tune the hell out of you. Mm -hmm. But also in more good news, you commissioned another woman to perform as you. And so How do you see ideas around self-representation kind of also crossing over with performativity?
1: Um, Well, maybe one thing that I'll say before I answer that is that it was multiple photo studios, not just one, um, and that were run by many different people of different nationalities, but they were all located in the Emirates. So I think for me, it sort of started as a guilt about photographing myself. I felt almost, I mean, not, not a guilt, but I felt like, okay, if I'm asking people to sit in front of this camera and trust me with their image, then surely I should be putting myself in the same position or at least understanding the risk of trusting somebody in that way. So it felt like a way to sort of level the playing field. But I think now I'm interested in ideas of self-presentation in what we put out into the world as an image, you know, in the ways that we choose to be seen or hope to be seen, but understanding that those desires are often tempered by so many different things, whether it's other people's perceptions about us or, um, you know, in the case of the performance in More Good News, it was about surveillance imaging and the sort of flattening of brown racial identity in America after 9-11. So the woman that I hired to play me um, as a doppelganger was quite similar to me. Like if we could have had the same driver's license if you just took our pictures away. But obviously we were very different people. And so she wore a suit that was tailored to my body. And so I think there were places that were too big and places that were too small. And over time you started to realize that maybe this person wasn't the artist. So yeah, so I think I'm, I'm, I'm very much interested in little details like that and in, in clothing choices Um, in, you know, the ways that people decide to present themselves on the internet, because all of those things are very much within, we perceive them to be in our control, but actually they're
0: really not. Yeah absolutely. I, I was I was curious actually because you're part of a new show in Amsterdam called Infinite Identities which mm-hmm. kind of plays with photography in the age of sharing and I guess sort of this idea of like branded identity and the show is looking at how artists use Instagram both to develop aspects of their practice but also look at how it could you know be an additional layer within art making or the art world and mm-hmm. I wondered You know, how do you use social media as an extension of your work? I know we touched on it earlier in terms of how you're kind of showing a little bit of your behind the scenes in Mm -hmm. terms of like the perfumes and and the different stuff you're discovering.
1: You know, it's funny is um, as part of that show, because I think all of the artists in the show have pretty active. Yeah, they all have active Instagram accounts. And um, the curator, Nanda Vandenberg, um, who's been such a pleasure to work with, she had taken a bunch of screen caps of our stories over the last year, I guess, leading up to the show and then presented them back to us for um, approval for the exhibition. And it was so funny because all of it is stuff that I put out to the public, but looking back on it, I was like, oh my God, somebody's watching me, you know? (laughs) Um, And there was something so jarring about seeing it as a sort of collection over time that made me a lot more aware of how I might seem versus how I think I use it. Maybe one thing, I, I think the way I've used the internet has changed a lot, certainly over the past couple of months. Like right now I'm in you know this solitary quarantine in the Emirates because everybody who comes into Abu Dhabi has to basically shelter in place with a wristband on. And so I'm near my family, but I can't really see them. And so the internet has been, I've been using Instagram stories a lot to just, it's like, it's become the equivalent of like a coffee shop or a bar to me. You know, it's like, it is my social space and it probably annoys a lot of people, but I feel like it's where I can connect to people the most. Um, and so I feel a lot less alone when I'm using it. So I've, I feel like the things that I post become a lot more arbitrary just because I'm not experiencing things in the world the way that I normally would. Um, And so for me, it really is, it's a social space. I like that you can respond to people's stories and that they can respond to yours. I feel like it really takes the pressure off of having to meet people, you know, in a sort of inorganic way. Like you can just sort of drum up conversations with people you don't know that well and connect over what movies you watch or what podcasts you listen to or Um, what opinion you have about one particular thing. So for me, it's just, it's become less a part of my practice and more a part of my need for social interaction. But I think ordinarily I do use it for small projects that I'll share. Like sometimes I use the acapella app to make these multi-track music video sequences, or sometimes I'll make like little funny videos or I don't know. So it's, it's, become a a substitute to having to you know have the pressure to make big things all the time and um, I'm I'm really thankful for it. I'm sure a lot of people would really disagree with me but I personally like having access to the internet right now.
0: Yeah me too. I mean the pandemic has obviously heightened the experience of social media for us for sure and and in that where lots of people are in lockdown a lot of the time, and it it is giving us an access to that social connection, like you said, that you would normally get in a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. I wanted to say to you, the requests that you've been doing this week have been so good. They've been just (laughs) bringing me so much joy. And even my daughter, who's 18 months old, she was cracking up watching one of your videos.
1: Oh, That is the ultimate compliment, because if a kid can laugh at me, I feel like I've done my job.
0: I basically love to hear about what other sources inform your work outside of the art world oh
1: yeah um definitely horror movies I'm a huge huge horror movie fan I feel like horror movies and Great British Bake Off are probably the things that got me through the pandemic in terms of you know things to watch and I'm really irritated right now because I was following the current season and I was trying to figure out how to look up the last episode because you know we're getting it later than everyone else uh, and the Google results immediately. The and I was like, no, <laughs> So now I know who the winner is. And I'm super annoyed. But at the wow. winner
0: or just that, you know,
1: I'm so, yeah, I'm so annoyed that I know. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but definitely um, 70s and 80s horror is a really big influence for me. Um, and music, too. I'm, you know, a huge music fan, um, really in all its forms. Um, I think I'm, I'm constantly thinking about how do you like translate an affect or an emotion that is so visceral um, that usually for me I can only feel in music to something visual. And for me that's a really big challenge. Like I feel like it's so much harder to evoke a truly visceral reaction from a work of art, at least particularly a photograph, um, because, I don't know, there's such familiarity with the language. Everybody knows what the world looks like. So how do you present something that is so unnameable and elusive, but deep and true? And I think music does that for me. Like it, it transcends the need for any other kind of language. Uh, and as somebody who is a self-described failed musician. I think it's it's something that I'm always trying to figure out, but it just, music feels so much more immediate to me.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it, that you, in that comparison with photography, because we are so visually literate. It's almost, I wonder sometimes if we're really seeing, if we, we're so yeah. used to seeing and looking all the time that we actually don't look. We, it's just become a sort of program. Whereas I don't think kind of hourly with that, we're as sophisticated yeah
1: I I agree I mean there's there are times when I don't notice things in my photographs until like two years later even even if they've been shown repeatedly someone will say oh I like that thing in the corner and I'm like wow you know I I have so I have color corrected this this photograph ad nauseum I've printed it maybe 70 times and I did not notice it until now so I'm guilty of it too I think it's like there are things that we're all hardwired to pay attention to. And those are going to be different from what other people pay attention to. And I think that's what makes photography interesting to me is that everybody's going to choose to zoom in on the, you know, on, on a very different thing. And I remember um, a year ago, I went to the Steinway piano factory in Queens and they don't let you take any photographs in there until you get to the end and there's only one angle that you're allowed to photograph. So if you go to the geotag on Instagram of the Steinway factory, you will see the same photograph, you know, wow. by hundreds of different people. And that's so interesting to me that like, even then it'll, the aspect ratio will change, you know, people put different filters on them. They have different phones with different processors and sensors and um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's interesting to me. like to think about what the tiny little changes Um, that could exist within a photographic frame within a moment of time um, how those could be so like still so telling
0: yeah that's so interesting I'm curious how you keep challenging yourself and how you kind of break yourself out of your comfort zone
1: I don't have to do that the the world does it for me (laughs) (laughs) the world is constantly challenging me and asking me to be uncomfortable Um, no I mean I kind of I joke, but I also don't. I mean, I think that if you're an engaged person and you surround yourself with genuine relationships, I think that there will be enough challenge to grow and learn there. I don't feel like I have to manufacture ways to challenge myself. I feel like just by getting older and you know becoming a, a person with very different needs and responsibilities that, that happens on its own. So for me, my current challenge is How do I be an artist right now when so much of my practice is deeply social and about being outside and interacting with friends and strangers, you know, and I never, never would have imagined that it would be such an issue, but I've learned, I think, how to expand my idea of what an artistic practice means in other ways. Um, And, you know, for me, that's often meant making work that's not meant to be seen or making work that only exists inside, you know? So I think, If you're a person living a life, you know, hopefully you will be challenged by that life in ways that are significant
0: and fulfilling and will make themselves known in your work. Buried within the work are these tensions around the boundaries of gender and gender identity. And I think that for me, that sort of particularly rings true in your female subjects and looking at the female experience. And I'm curious how your own personal feminism manifests in your work
1: yeah I often have a hard time talking about feminism because I think that a lot of people equate it to Western feminism, which is very much one small and flat um, facet of you know the meaning of of the word and so for me i the way that I think about gender has been very much informed by my upbringing and is really for me impossible to disentangle from wider ideas about state power, um, religious hegemony and and colonialism, to be frank. You know, I think people use that word a lot. But when I, when I think about the way that gender is very much divided in the Emirates and the way that it is in many other places, it's really not unique to us. Um, a lot of that is actually a direct fallout from the kind of new wave of religiousness that came about in the 80s as a response to British presence and imperialism. So because there were so many new countries formed um, and, you know, the GCC was formed, the, the UAE was only formed in 1971. We had been very much occupied by British forces for a very long time. And so I think there was this idea that in order to uh, wash ourselves clean of that and become a, a very a distinct and autonomous country in our own right with a very particular sense of national identity, religion was what was ushered in to, to, to really create that sense of identity. Uh, and so where in the past you might have seen – women not wearing headscarves or um, participating in community and um, politics in a very different way. All of a sudden in the 80s and the 90s, we have these ideas of, you know, women as sort of, you know, mothers, not necessarily homemakers, but entertainers. You know, women are like our our social lives are very much contained to homes where men go to the mosque, they go to the coffee shop, they go to the meds which is like the local community. Um, I don't know what you would call it, like a hangout. Uh, So there's definitely a very different relationship that men and women are expected to have to public space from a very young age. And that's all new. So for me, it is really hard to talk about it on its own because you also have in this part of the world, you can't really talk about women's rights without also talking about the rights of domestic workers who make up a huge part of our population. Um, you know, who are from all over Asia and Africa. So I think that it, it is, it is complicated. The I think the way that I address it in my work is to hopefully try and I think limit it to my experience and the experiences of the people who are in the work and to really show that there are so many complexities to womanhood and femininity, you know, that are very much universal. But I think this is where I am. This is where these people are. And so this is the experience that you see.
0: I could really talk to you about your work for hours, but I feel like it's a good time to kind of wind up here. And, and I wondered if I could ask you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show, what matters more to you, the experience of making the work and that process or the final image? That's a really good question.
1: Um, for me, I, I think it has to be the experience because I don't know. It's it's about it's about being an active player in the world, you know. Um I think I I wouldn't be able to make my work in a studio. I think it has to do with a daily insistent and anxious need to understand how the world works. So for me the image is just an archive of that and I don't even fully understand the relevance of that archive right now because I think it'll start to make sense in, you know, ten, twenty years. Um but for me it's always about the experience and then the image comes after. Ah, very good answer. Thank you
0: so much. It's been so great speaking to you. Likewise,
1: thank you so much. I love your question.
0: Thanks for listening to the messy truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at jemfletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.